In his landmark book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman argued that modern culture is awash in expressive individualism. The notion that we can only truly flourish if we give voice to our innermost thoughts, feelings, and inclinations. And yet, the Christian faith is a faith rooted not in personal preference, but in divine revelation. Revelation that tells us who we are and why we were created. The call of the Bible is not that we be true to ourselves, but that we conform to the pattern of life set forth by Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. In his newest book, Crisis of Confidence, Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity, Carl Truman explores how the historic creeds and confessions of the church can help to shape God's people toward greater and greater Christlikeness. In an age of self-expression and self-creation, these old summaries of biblical teaching are all the more important as we seek to live faithfully in an increasingly anti-Christian world. Let's get started. Well, Carl, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Absolute pleasure to be here, Matt. Thanks very much for having me on. So the subtitle of this new book is Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity. And we'll get to the historic faith part of that subtitle in a bit, but anyone who's followed your writing over the last few years likely knows that you've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about the modern West and our obsession with individualism and identity. And your book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, I'm sure many listeners have, have heard of that book, maybe read that book. It's a big book, um, but it's all about those issues. So I wonder if you can just do some level setting for us. What do you mean when you say that our culture today is consumed with individualism and identity? Well, it's in some ways, it's as you say, it's a big book. Uh, you know, it's difficult to summarize in, in the space of 60 or 90 seconds. But what I would say is that, that essentially we're taught to believe that we're autonomous and free individuals today. That's the message society sends to us. The way we find our fulfillment is in, in realizing that autonomy and that freedom. Well, that doesn't come alone. That, that carries certain implications or it, it carries certain tilts into the way we imagine the world and our relationship to the world to be. One of them, for example, would be it will tilt us towards thinking that, that history is somewhat oppressive because you know, what is the origin of inequality? What are the origins of the differences between us? What are the origins of the problems we see in society around us? Well, if you think that human beings are, are pristine, autonomous, free individuals, You'll tend to think that the origins of the problems of these things come from institutions, come from traditions, come from history. And that makes us uh, a more, what I would describe as a kind of anti-historical culture, that we're people who are intuitively suspicious of the external, intuitively suspicious of the old and the established, and points us away from those things towards the future or towards self-creation, towards those things that serve to make me feel good, uh, as opposed to those things which make me realize I'm part of a, a larger whole or have obligations towards a larger whole. And all of these things are uh, profoundly inimical to traditional religion, and I think particularly inimical to traditional Christianity, because Christianity uh, articulates the ultimate historic external authority, which is God himself, 
uh, as he has manifested himself through his historical acts and how he has uh, represented himself uh, in, in our world through, through his people and through his church. So the tilt of modern individualism really tilts us against finding traditional Christianity to be something that is desirable or plausible. Yeah, it's such a helpful way to frame that, that, you know, the modern world we live in is bent towards the inward and maybe the present time and the future, whereas Christianity, the Christian faith, would tend to push us in the other direction to the external, looking outside ourselves for salvation, and then even into the past as we look back to uh, salvation history and even the history of the church. And uh, so that's what this book is about. It's looking to the past to help uh, shape and form who we are as Christians today. And you published the first, we'll call it iteration or edition of this book, uh, originally titled The Creedal Imperative in 2012. So that's over 10 years ago. And that's a long time, as you know, in the publishing world. Uh, a lot happens in 10 years. And yet you say that your convictions around the core thesis of the book have only grown stronger over the past decade. It's not like the book has become irrelevant in any sense. So uh, two related questions. What's the core thesis that you're trying to communicate in this book? And why is it more relevant today than it even was a decade ago? Yeah, well, the core thesis is really that, that Christianity is an historic religion and therefore should be anchored in the great creedal statements, the great confessional statements, the great doctrines that have been formulated by the church over time. And my burden in the original version of the book was really to try to persuade uh, evangelicals who have a very high view of the Bible, very high view of God, very high view of Jesus, that all of the things they most valued were best uh, preserved, transmitted, defended, taught through returning to those great confessional and creedal documents of the church. Many evangelicals have oddly a, a sort of an intuitive suspicion of history as well. Not for the same reasons perhaps that I described in my answer to the first question, uh, more out of a desire to make sure they're faithful to, to, to scripture, more out of a, a feeling that the Reformation liberated us from uh, tradition and we don't want to go back there. My, my argument in the first book was uh, really that no, actually biblical thinking is best protected by respecting the great traditions and the great traditional documents of the church. And the second question, why have my convictions on this issue become even stronger in the year since, is that I think the problem in evangelicalism now is not just the, the standard trajectories of evangelicalism, focusing on scripture alone and things like that. The problem is the wider culture that is pressing in on us. And none of us in the church are immune to the wider culture. And all of those things that I talked about in my, my, my first answer, the way that individualism has really come to reshape the way we think about history, the way we think about institutions, the way we think about authority, have only become more intense in the last decade or decade and a half. And we're fooling ourselves if we think that those things have not had some impact on the church. I happen to think that the church on the whole has done a better job than the rest of the culture in fending those things off. But we're not entirely immune to the, the air that we breathe, the water in which we swim. And so what I wanted to do in the second edition of the book was in some ways not do a major revision or, or majorly disrupt the original thesis and content, but reorient it and perhaps bring in a couple of other emphases to help people realize that actually uh, creedalism, confessionalism, 
this return to the creeds and confessions, uh, it has even more benefits for us now than it did in 2012 when the first book was published. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you're a pastor, you are a professor, you teach young people uh, every day at Grove City College. What has it looked like? What is this, over the last decade or so, what are the changes, very practically, that you're seeing in terms of how people, how young people in particular, are expressing their thoughts about tradition and history and their identities as as people is there anything that any like commonalities or any through lines that you would point to that you have actually experienced yourself yeah it's an interesting question and and my answer is somewhat shaped by the fact that grove city college is not a it's not a representative slice of american youth we we tend on the whole to attract uh, students either from fairly traditional Christian backgrounds or students from what I would describe as working class or lower middle class, socially conservative backgrounds. So one of the encouraging things actually I've noticed among students at a place like Grove is that history is becoming more attractive to them. I think their response to the, the liquidity of the culture around, their response to the uh, excesses of expressive individualism in the culture around has actually been to to readdress the historic roots of Christianity. So, for example, one of the thriving student churches in Grove City is Grace Anglican, the pastor's good friend of mine, a man called Ethan Magnus. The uh, assistant pastor there is a very good and close colleague of mine in my own department, uh, the Reverend Don Shepson. Uh, a lot of students go to that church and I ask them, you know, why do you go to Grace Anglican? You, know, you come from such and such a Baptist church or you come from such and such a, an evangelical church where you know, they've been well taught the Bible, the pastors love them, they've had good Christian friends. And typically the answer, once they've said, well, Pastor Ethan, Pastor Don are wonderful people, the next thing in their list of priorities is we love the liturgy, we love the rootedness in history, we love the fact that when we worship on a Sunday, we are connected not just with saints around the world at the moment, but we're deeply rooted in what saints have believed and you, words they've used in praise for many, many years. So on that front, I'm encouraged that there is a reaction among some Christian youth who are finding, well, I would say, the thinness of our world, the world that expressive individualism represents. They're finding that thinness very unsatisfying and are looking to satisfy their urges and their instincts on this front in good places. I suspect that they're unrepresentative young people as a whole. Uh, and what I would love to see, I think, in the next decade is more and more of those evangelical churches that they come from. Where again, I, I want to go out of my way to say, I, I'm actually not a pastor anymore. I'm, I'm just a minister uh, teaching at a college. Uh, I have huge admiration for anybody in the pastorate. It is hard and often thankless work. And good men in the pastorate. What I really hope to see is that those guys who love Jesus will come to realize that actually they can better serve their people and especially better serve their young people by orienting their own ministry back to the great historic roots of the faith and will make places like Grace Anglican not the exception, if you like, but will make places like Grace Anglican more and more typical of what is going on in the Christian world today. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think sometimes, I know I've heard critiques of young people. Uh, that's that's obviously happens all the time. Uh, as we get older, we love to critique the younger generations. Uh, but there can be a little bit of a, 
maybe from lower church contexts, a little bit of a suspicion around the way that young people, we kind of see this, people have written about this draw towards liturgy, the draw towards some of these higher church liturgical traditions, uh, often coming out of a, you know, a mega church or kind of context. And sometimes we can be a little suspicious of that and think, oh, that's just chasing after a fad or be pejorative even and say that's, you know, uh, just a, a love for smells and bells, but it doesn't represent anything substantial. It sounds like, though, you're kind of saying there, there might actually be, that might reflect a deeper sense that, that young people even are picking up on, a, a thinness to our Christian faith as experienced uh, oftentimes in churches and in our culture, that it's actually a true thing. Would you, is, that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that there could certainly be some truth to that. There are fads. I mean, 20 years ago, whatever, it was the emergent church. Uh, then it was the young, restless and reformed. We know that there are fads that, that pick up followers. But we also know from those fads that not everybody involved was just there because it was a fad. They were there because, say, in the emergent church, they realised the importance of community. Or in young, restless and reformed, they, they realised that actually... Uh, doctrine was important and there was a core of committed and sincere people and I think in both if you look at the emergent church and the young restless and reform movements they were both pointing to a lack in the churches from which they'd come so I think our first response to if you like we want to call it the liturgical movement I think that gives it a bit more it makes it more formal than it really is but if we'd say the liturgical trend among young people i think the first thing we need to ask is okay what lack is this pointing to in our own churches let's think about this let's not just dismiss it as a fad but saying what's making this fad plausible what makes it desirable what what's attractive here is there something we can learn from this secondly i do think we need to to though to to keep pressing on people that the things do need to be true as well. Uh, you know, it's not just good enough for worship to be beautiful. It has to be true. So we, we can't uh, uh, let that uh, slip. But I think thirdly as well, uh, the, another way of putting this, in, and this is something that's been said to me a few times by uh, Christians who've moved in this liturgical direction, is we like going to a church on a Sunday where the, the worship is grown up and the worship is adult. Now, that's their words, not mine. But I think I know what they're talking about. I mean, recently there was a, an incident I, I wrote briefly about it at World magazine where a Baptist pastor and his wife led worship dressed as Woody and his girlfriend from Toy Story. Now, I don't want to impute bad motives to the pastor in doing that. But I do want to say it's hard for me, if I came in as an outsider to that church, it's hard for me to think that anything serious is going on there. If I want Disney, I can, I can get Disney on the Disney Channel. Uh, Paul is very clear when he, you know, that brief comment he makes in Corinthians about what happens when an outsider wanders into a Christian worship service. He falls flat on his face. He doesn't laugh. He isn't amused. He's struck because something serious and adult is happening there, the worship of a holy God. Now, again, I don't want to say that the worship of a holy God always looks the same in all times and in all places. Can you worship God with the worship leader playing a guitar? Of course you can. Yeah. I, I don't want to impose one cultural model. Because that is the response, that. is that too often we conflate a certain cultural standard or preference uh, yeah. with some kind of idea of biblical worship. 
Yeah, and we have to be very careful about that. We have to be self-critical. I would say, though, that in no culture of which I'm aware would dressing up like Woody of Toy Story uh, (laughs) communicate that there's something serious going on there. So all of this is to say, when we look at this liturgical tilt among young people, let's ask, what's the serious question lying behind it? What's making it plausible? And what can we do better? What can we learn from this? Set aside the faddish nature of some of it. What can we learn from it? And I think, connecting back to my book, which of course is you know, what I'm trying to push in this podcast, I guess, is one thing we do learn from it is that time is a great corroder of rubbish. And things that stand the test of time often do so for a good reason. And that is they capture more of the truth and they're more serious than ephemera. And so again, to go back to the book and talk about creeds and confessions, why do I belong to a church where the Westminster Confession is still the doctrinal standard? Well, 400 years on, the Westminster standards are still speaking to people. One of the reasons for that is they've got to be touching on something of the truth at this point. Uh, 1,500 years on, more than 1,500 years on, we're still reciting the Nicene Creed on a Sunday. Why are we doing that? Because it captures something of the biblical teaching about God and it connects to our hearts. It connects to our minds. It gives us a magnificent, great picture of God and an opportunity to express our unity in worshipping that God with other Christian believers. It's a great segue into, I wrote down a number of maybe objections or at least questions that Christians often might have when it comes to the creeds and confessions and their role in our lives, both as individual Christians, but especially our lives in the church. One, the first one might be, you know, my church already has a statement of faith, right? It's right there on our website. Yeah. You can go yeah. read it. Uh, why do we need this 300 or 400 year old document written by Christians who yeah. lived in a very different time, right? Like yeah. the, the world was so different back during the Reformation yeah. and, and even in the, the hundreds of years after that. So what's the need there? What are we getting out of a, a, a creed or confession that a simple doctrinal statement doesn't yeah. provide? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are numerous things one could say in response to that. First of all, the, the age thing, is, as I already said, you know, if something stood the test of time, there's probably a reason for that. I don't trust the Westminster Confession of Faith because it's 400 years old. I trust the Westminster Confession of Faith because it seems to me to make sense of what the Bible's saying. Uh, and it seems to have made sense to an awful lot of people in the 400 years since it was written. Um, so the, there's that element to it. Secondly, if your church has a statement of faith, well, first of all, let me say, that's a great thing. Um, I, I think it's better for a church to have a statement of faith than to have nothing at all. If you have nothing at all, then the pastor really can reinvent the faith every Sunday and there's no way you can hold him to account. It's difficult for you to communicate to people outside the church what you believe or what when visitors come. So it's great to have a statement of faith. I do think, though, it's helpful to have an elaborate statement of faith, such as a confession. Why? Well, there are many reasons, but I'll just give two. Uh, one of them is, pedagogically, if you only, say, have ten points in your statement of faith... It's going to be very hard to convince people that the 11th point is important. You know, you're making a statement about what is and is not important. You're saying these 10 things are important. Everything else is negotiable. And I think that's unfortunate. It doesn't mean you can't be a church with a good stake. Of course you can. But it could lead to complications. 
And the second reason is, you know, one of the complications it might lead to. Take, for example, you know, one of the big pressing issues of, of it, it's sort of been decided by the culture now, but it's still a pressing issue for churches, a gay marriage. You know, if you have a 10-point statement of faith that was written in 2005, I bet it doesn't address marriage. I bet it doesn't address gay marriage. Well, that puts you in a very difficult position now because either you have to say, well, our church has a position on it, but we've not written it down, or you have to now write it down and it looks as if you're simply picking on gay people. If you subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, what you have in that confession is a fairly elaborate anthropology, teaching about what men and women are and how they are to connect to each other. And secondly, you have a statement on what marriage is. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith does not address gay marriage directly, but what it does is it tells you what marriage is. And therefore, by implication, it excludes everything else that marriage isn't. Well, that allows me, let's say, when a gay couple come to my church and say, what's your position on marriage? I can point into my statement of faith and say, look, this is our position on marriage, and this is how it works into the whole doctrinal framework that we have. And it's not designed to exclude gay people. It's designed to affirm what marriage truly is. And by the way, it was written in 1647, so it certainly wasn't a homophobic document, if you like. Now, that's just one example where I think that if you have an elaborate statement of faith, you are better equipped to deal with the kind of cultural challenges that are getting thrown up by the world around. I remember being asked several times when teaching at the seminary in the run-up to the uh, gay marriage decision at the Supreme Court in 2015, does the Westminster Confession of Faith, do we need to add a chapter on gay marriage? My answer was always no, because actually the issue is dealt with. We may need as a denomination to produce a report on gay marriage to help pastors think pa the pastoral implications through more thoroughly. But actually, because we have an elaborate statement of what the truth is, an awful lot of falsehood is excluded by implication. Yeah. So those are the two reasons I would say that are helpful. Yeah, and one response to that could be, you know, that, that sort of presupposes a perspective on the church that is maybe one of almost putting up, this, is, this could be the critique. You're, you're trying to establish all these walls to protect against false doctrine, and someone could say, well, well, my church, my aim with my church is more of to be a missional church, and I want to, yeah. I want to establish the core, the basic mere Christianity, so to speak, that, that we believe that is yeah. essential, and I want to allow a little more flexibility on a lot of these other things yeah. so as to reach more people, bring more people in, help them to worship God together, and I want to focus on the core. Is that a valid way to think about this? Yeah, and, and I think that's a very important question. Of course, you know, how welcoming is your church to outsiders? for example, I would say the answer to that question, partly I, I, I would want to step outside the specific issue of creeds and confessions and say, actually, the welcoming nature of a church is, is as much part of the ethos or the culture as it is that the doctrinal documents. So every church believes something and therefore, by definition, does not believe the opposite of that thing. So every church has a creed somewhere that's going to exclude somebody. Uh, even your mere Christianity church excludes Unitarians. So the very nature of Christianity as at core a doctrinal thing, not just a doctrinal thing, but a doctrinal thing, means there are boundaries and barriers there. Second thing I would say is it's important to, to think about how 
confessions particularly function in the church and I actually deal with this at a little bit of length in the book I say one of the great things I think about having a church where you have elders and you also have lay people is this we require more of elders than we do of lay people so if you were to come to my church and, and say Truman I, I, I'm a Christian uh, I, I affirm you know, Jesus has died for my sins, that Jesus is God, is Trinity, the scriptures are authoritative. Uh, and I believe that the elders have pastoral oversight and authority over me. I'd say to you, great, you can join my church. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to sign up to the Westminster Confession of Faith to be a member of my church. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a church document. What does that mean by that? Well, two things, really. The Westminster Confession of Faith reflects the faith of the church, not necessarily of every single individual in every detail who belongs to that church. Secondly, it's a church document because it's something that has to be affirmed and maintained by the eldership, the eldership of the church. So you might what I'm saying really there is, we demand more doctrinally of the elders than we do of congregants. And again, I think this is actually one of the ways in which confessions, oddly, we think of them as keeping people out. But actually, they're liberating and they, they allow people in because I'm saying, you know, you and I can disagree on a heap of stuff. But I can't disagree with the confession as an elder. But your disagreement with me on some things does not necessarily mean you can't be a member of my church. And it allows me as a member to know kind of with a lot of confidence what you as the pastor or elder yeah. believe. And we can kind of hold you to account, as you said before. Maybe an, another possible objection or question. You, you were emphasizing a minute ago the comprehensiveness, the, uh, the exhaustive nature of some of these creeds and confessions for, for Christian doctrine, helping us to answer questions that might be coming up whether about marriage or what it means to be a human. And one response to that could be, well, doesn't the Bible already do that? Why do I need another another human-created yeah. document? Why wouldn't we just point people to Scripture and let Scripture be that authority? Why introduce almost a middleman between Scripture and us as Christians today? Well, many answers to that question. One of it, we, why don't you Google what people think the Bible means or, or teaches about marriage and, and let me know the response. You know? <laughs> uh, when you drive down the road and you see that United Methodist Church with the rainbow flag outside, uh, you could chat to the pastor and he'll tell you he's taking the Bible seriously. Yeah, they're preaching from the, the Bible. And yeah. He's fly, yeah, he's flying the rainbow flag. So first of all, we all know that appeals to the Bible are not quite as simple as we like to think they are. The Bible is interpreted. We all interpret the Bible. Now, and I want to suggest that some of us interpret the Bible more truly and better than others do. Uh, obviously, the Bible doesn't simply mean whatever anybody wants it to mean. Uh, so the, the, there's that aspect uh, to it. Uh, and then I would go to say, OK, if you go to the church and this, I think, is the scenario I start the book with, really, you go to the church where somebody says, OK, we have no creed but the Bible. The problem is they do have a creed beyond the Bible. The pastor does not just stand up and read the Bible on a Sunday. The Bible tell the, the pastor tells you what the Bible means. The pastor interprets it. The pastor, if you like, synthesizes coherent teaching out of the very disparate documents that are the Bible. Don't When I say disparate, I don't mean contradictory, but I'm saying the Bible contains history, it contains poetry, it contains, it's varied, there are various literary genres. What 
the Confession does, what the Westminster Confession, for example, does, is tries to pull together from all of those different genres key unifying themes, key unifying ideas in the Bible. It's impossible to interpret the Bible without having a set of key unifying ideas. What the Confession does is it provides you with those. Now, the Confession itself, of course, the Westminster Confession, states right at the start that it is itself subordinate to Scripture. So you might say to me, Truman, I completely disagree with you on this statement in the Confession. And at that point, we can get into a discussion. I'm not going to say, but the Confession says it, so it must absolutely be true. I'm going to say to you, well, I have no vested interest in believing something the Bible doesn't teach. So please, show me the passages in the Bible and show me how you interpret the Bible in a way that renders this paragraph, this sentence, this claim to be one that is not sustainable on the basis of biblical teaching. So, you know, another strand to my response would be, remember that confessionalism is not supposed to be setting up the confession as an independent authority from scripture or over scripture. It presents itself as a synthesis of scripture and therefore is susceptible to critique in the light of scripture. Yeah. And then that's the response to someone who would be concerned that this would push against the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, that scripture is the highest authority, uh, but not the only authority. One of the things you get into, some of the language that you use in the book that I, and others have used this as well, that I thought was helpful was the idea of a normed norm and a norming norm. I wonder if you can, it sounds a little bit abstract, a little bit like a tongue twister. Uh, What do those, those two terms mean and how do they apply to this? Well, first of all, just to touch on, you mentioned, you know, people worry that confessions compromise the scriptural own principle of the Reformation. It's interesting that every great reformer is involved in writing, in the writing of a confession. Some of them have been lost to history, but all reformers are involved in producing these great synthetic documents, Mm. summarizing scripture in in confessional form. So so they didn't Um, see the contradiction there? No, no. They saw the confessions they wrote as conveniently and helpfully summarizing the teaching of scripture both for the good governance of the church and for the pedagogy for the education of uh, the people and the terms normed norm and norming norm well the, the norming norm is the ultimate authority scripture is the norming norm in other words every statement that a preacher makes every statement that a christian makes every statement we find in a hymn Every statement we might make when we're explaining the gospel, explaining some doctrinal point to a friend, every statement contained in a Protestant confession is under the authority of the norming norm. The normative thing, the normative criteria are provided by scripture. Having said that, in practical terms in the life of the church, we have what we call the normed norm, and that is the confession. Uh, The confession is taken as a summary of what scripture says. So, for example, to give a very practical example of this, if there was a very unfortunate circumstance in my congregation where, let's say, somebody had committed a serious sin that rose to the level of church discipline, that the elders had got to rebuke this person, either publicly or privately, or or worse still, had got to suspend this person from the Lord's Supper, or even worse, excommunicate them. The process for doing that would involve specifying which parts of the confession this person had contravened in their belief, 
their teaching or their life. Now think about that. You're bringing there, if you like, you're saying, well, the person has, has cheated on his wife and therefore he's contradicted the teaching, the, the confession's explanation of the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. The document there is functioning, if you like, the confessional document as a summary of biblical teaching. And that's what we mean by, so in, in practical terms, the norm norm is the confession. When we operate in the church, when I preach, for example, sometimes I might refer people to Westminster Confession, chapter 3, paragraph 1. Or I might say, the larger catechism summarizes this biblical teaching beautifully as follows. And I quote the larger catechism. What I'm doing there is pointing to the normed norm. I'm not granting it independent or absolute authority. I'm saying it is the norm I'm operating within the pulpit that has already been normed by the norming norm, yeah. by Scripture. Just to keep going with this this uh, situation, if you were in an excommunication situation and you were actually about to do that, you would go, you would cite Scripture as the authoritative basis for yeah. that action, or uh, not uh, one of these normed norms, which doesn't actually have the authority in and of itself. Well, typically what we do in that situation is you read out, you'd read out the, sum, the summary statement from the confession or the catechism, and then you would point people to the scripture passages that underlie the teaching of that. I don't like the word proof text because it sounds too much as if sometimes, you know, proof text indicates you just grab the one verse and there it is, bingo. Well, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yes, it's there. Denial of the Trinity, that's a trickier one to grab a single proof text on. But you would certainly point people towards the underlying scripture passages. So you might, for example, in an adultery case, quote, yes, the Ten Commandments. You'd quote the passage from uh, the Confession or the Catechism. Then you'd quote the commandment. And then you might also point to other instances in scripture. The woman caught in adultery, for example, or something like that. In order to say to the people... What the confession of the catechism is doing here is pulling together in a single sentence, or maybe two sentences, what we actually find taught in a dozen, fifty, a hundred scriptural passages, mm, of which yeah. the following two or three are the best representatives. Yeah. I mean, a couple more uh, objections or questions people might have. Um, I love objections. Keep firing them at me. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you talked a lot about how, you know, use the, the example of marriage and how the Westminster Confession uh, does uh, speak about marriage. It doesn't address gay marriage in particular. And uh, the Westminster Confession addresses what it means to be made in the image of God and male and female, but doesn't address transgenderism in particular. Yeah. Um, one question people could have is, do the creeds and confessions of the church of church history really address all of the issues facing us today? Or is, is that kind of giving them a little bit too much credit for if there's all this all these yeah. papers that need to be written in addition to that uh, and yeah. more conversation around things like uh, maybe AI and, and other, other technology type of yeah. questions that we might have today? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think it's a very legitimate question. Uh, my response would be that the creeds and confessions don't address all of the issues that pop up today any more than they addressed all of the issues that popped up in the 18th century when the document Westminster Confession, for example, was written in the 17th century. What they do do, I think, is sufficiently summarise the whole counsel of God in such a way that they provide you with a framework for addressing such things. And of course, even in saying that, what I, what I don't want to say is, you know, the creeds and confessions don't make scripture redundant. They give us a scriptural framework for thinking about these things. So if you was, you know, if I was, 
If I had somebody come to me and say, my son thinks he's a woman trapped in a man's body, how am I going to handle that? Well, I'm not simply going to say, go away and read the Westminster Confession. What I would probably do is I'd want to get them to think about, well, let's think about the doctrine of creation. Let's think about the implications of that for uh, how God has made men and women. Let's think about what scripture teaches about the connection of our bodies to who we are. That Adam, it's when he sees the embodiment of Eve and he makes that declaration that this flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. He's not making a distinction there between Eve as Eve and Eve as a body. So I would want to, to use biblical teaching uh, as summarized in the Confessions to, to address those topics. But I would not want to say, let me, let me put it this way, I would not want to hypothetically say that I could not imagine a situation that, that a situation could not arise where maybe I'd be forced to say, okay, we may need another paragraph in the confession. I, I don't believe in confessional sufficiency in quite the same way I believe in biblical sufficiency. But I'm not going to go there until I've tried really, really, really hard to answer the question or the problem or the challenge I'm faced with without having to alter the confession. And then again, I think also a lot of problems that pop up can be fairly ephemeral and not necessarily ones that are gonna stand the test of time and require an additional paragraph to the confession. You know, think for example, a hundred years ago, you know, lobotomies. You know, it might be, might be a bizarre example, but you know, what should the Christian position on lobotomies be? When we look at that now, we think, well, I'm, I'm glad there is no you know, we, we didn't add a paragraph to the Westminster Confession on lobotomies because it would be entirely useless. Uh, and you can actually go back and dig up some of the many, many confessions produced in the Reformation era. Some of them have paragraphs on some pretty weird stuff. Uh, and, and if you like, the confessions that have survived the test of time have by and large been the confessions where... Everything was, this may sound paradoxical, but everything was both fully elaborated and pretty bare bones at the same time. We don't have paragraphs dealing with, with weird issues that were distinctives in the 17th century. I'm trying to think of an example, but I can't think of. Now, I'm sure if you dig deep enough, you're probably going to find a confession that has a section on horoscopes or something like that, uh, or astrology which was a much bigger challenge for the church in the early modern era than it is today. So I would say there are also issues that present themselves to us as very, very urgent and immediate, but which may pass away in 25, 30, 35 years' time. And I would actually think that, my own belief is that I think transgenderism could well be one of those. There are already cracks appearing in the transgender edifice. We may well get through that without having to think about any uh, alteration to the confession at all. Yeah. Uh, so last objection or concern that people might have. So you know, most of the confessions uh, and that we would, many denominations, Protestant denominations would cite today, kind of originated in the Reformation era, at least somewhere around that time. And if anyone has studied history at all of that time, we would know that that, that was a that was a fractious time, a lot of splitting around, a lot of new yeah. denominations cropping up all over the place, a lot of uh, strongly worded denunciations of others, often along these doctrinal division lines where e even yeah. relatively small doctrines that today we would be able to fellowship despite in the Protestant generation that that wasn't necessarily the case. And I, so I think one concern could be that a re-emphasis on 
uh, recovering some of these classic creeds and confessions will only encourage more doctrinal divisiveness. And maybe that, that strikes some people as pretty odd in a day when right now, from the prevailing secular culture, the church is, as you've said, is kind of under attack on some of these moral and yeah. ethical, even just basic Christian worldview issues, yeah. where yeah. many, many Christians across denominational lines could link arms on these core ideas. Yeah. Uh, and yet, would an emphasis on these uh, robust doctrinal creeds and confessions hinder that kind of unity that we actually need right now? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Though, though, when you were talking about the sort of fractious and splitting over hair uh, over minor doctrine, I thought you were describing Twitter. I didn't think you were describing <laughs> the the 16th, 17th century. It could have been Christian Twitter today. Can, can, can you imagine <laughs> Martin Luther on Twitter today? It would have been quite the sight think, to behold. Yeah, the only two people in history who should have ever been allowed a Twitter account, I think Martin Luther and Friedrich Nietzsche. I think they would have been <laughs> hilarious. It would have been fun to have it seen would have been dark, go back really and dark. forwards. <laughs> yes, so it's a good question. And I think some of that depends on how you, you use the confessions. In my own personal experience, you know, I spend a lot of time, uh, I do a lot of work for First Things. Uh, I do a lot of work for the Ethics and Public Policy Center where most of my colleagues are not of the same confessional commitment as myself. First Things, uh, most of my colleagues are actually fairly traditional conservative Catholics. Uh, my, my wonderful editor, Ramona, she's a confessional Lutheran. Ethics and Public Policy Center is very similar. And I've developed some great friendships across party lines in both of those organizations. And I've actually found that my confessional stance has been helpful. It's been helpful on two fronts. It's been helpful, one, on setting out the fact that there are important differences between us that my Catholic friends know Yo, Truman's not a Catholic, and, and we can see where we differ with him. And my, my good friend, Fran Mayer, actually said one of the things that he most appreciates about, he says, confessional Presbyterians is they take Presbyterianism seriously. They don't pretend to be Catholics. They know they're not Catholics. He said, and I found that's quite liberating because it frees you up then actually to engage in what I would call honest dialogue and honest interaction that we're already saying there are certain things that are important that we don't agree on. Secondly, I think... Confessions do provide us with kind of a hierarchy of doctrines as well. So in the Westminster Confession of Faith, you know, I'm going to say to you, yeah, there are certain doctrines there like the Trinity that are far more important ultimately than statements about the relationship of church and state. That confessions themselves allow you to see the great architectonic structure of Christian doctrine, which allows you to see in many ways what things lie at the center and what things lie on the outside, uh, what things are non-negotiable, and what things are almost entirely negotiable, what things are necessary for what I would describe as the very existence of the church, and what things are there for the well-ordering of the church. And I think that's an important distinction. Uh, there are churches where I would disagree with some of the things they believe, but I still want to say the Gospels preach there. Good friend, uh, Mark Dever, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Absolutely recognized Mark as a brother in the gospel, a gospel minister, Capitol uh, Hill as, as a church. Completely wrong on baptism, of course. But, you know, okay, his church is not properly ordered from my perspective in the way that my church is not properly ordered from his perspective. But we can see because we know where we stand on a whole variety of differences, 
we can see where the core important things are and where the things get less and less core as you move out from the center. That's not to say that confessions can't be used in a way to split. The history of my own tradition, Presbyterianism, is a great example of the way the confession is used as an instrument of division, not unity. The fact that I could probably be ordained with good and good conscience in at least five different Presbyterian denominations that have churches within a 35 mile radius of where I'm sitting now indicates that the confession can be used as a source of disunity. But I would put it this way, if you don't mind me sort of misquoting the National Rifle Association, one of their old slogans, confessions don't kill people, people kill people. And I think that's an important thing to grasp. And that's always how I try to use the confession these days. The confession is my place to stand, whereby I can engage thoughtfully, charitably and ecumenically with others who disagree with me. It's not my machine gun for blowing other people uh, away with. Yeah. Carl, thank you so much. You, you have done such a service to so many people, helping us to understand the, the moment in which we live right now and the prevailing culture. But I think this book in particular helps to, to then also point us back to see that the, the heritage that we have, all of us have, no matter where we're at on the Christian family tree, so to speak, we have this heritage that we can draw from and, and appreciate perhaps more than we currently do. So we appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks very much for having me on. That was Carl Truman on the historic creeds and confessions of the church. For more, be sure to check out his new book with Crossway, Crisis of Confidence, reclaiming the historic faith in a culture consumed with individualism and identity. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.